Great. Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Lovely to see you here. And um, I bought. Uh, I thought since we're a small number, I thought I might do a little bit of an object lesson um, in our sermon. So I've brought with me uh, two rocks. Well, actually, I didn't bring them with me. I thought about this about five minutes ago and sent a message to my son, Seth, and said, can you go to my bedside table? Pick up the two stones that are there, run over to them, and I'll make it worth your while with a pack of mini cheddars or something a little later on. So uh, he's very easily motivated for that. Um, so I'm going to pass around so you can have a little feel of these two stones that I keep on my bedside table. Why on earth does the vicar keep stones on his bedside table, I hear you say. And um, they're two stones which are special to me because they're from special places. And uh, it, they, will, they will prove to be relevant in a moment. But I, I thought of these because, you know, these words of Jesus are a bit confusing for us because one moment he's talking about vineyards, the next moment he's talking about stones. And uh, we're not quite sure why the vineyard and then why the stones. And that's what I want to try and explore today a little bit, why the vineyard is important and why the stone is important as well. Um, this stone, first of all, is from Masada in Israel. Uh, Masada is a sort of hilltop which had a hilltop fortress uh, which was besieged by the Roman army um, from AD 66 to AD 70, and uh, the, the Jewish people who were rebelling and trying to overthrow uh, their Roman occupiers were besieged at Masada on this hilltop fortress, and finally the siege was broken in AD 70, and, um, uh, and uh, Masada fell, and um, in a way that, that the Romans were back in control. So this is a sort of symbol of God's people holding out against the forces of oppression and occupation. Uh, and so I keep this. So have a little, have a little feel, have a little look at the colour, pass it around. And as long as I get them back, what does it be? This stone is um, from a very, very famous vineyard, a vineyard in Chateauneuf de Pape. Uh, and right up by the old ancient ruined palace of the popes at Chateauneuf de Pape, uh, there is a series of vineyards, uh, a series of vines planted. And um, the thing that makes Chateauneuf de Pape famous as a vineyard is these red, reddish stones that are all around the base of the vines. And uh, what these stones do is they absorb all of the heat from the sun uh, during the daytime, during the daylight hours. Will, you've got this? Yeah, good. Glad I've got your full attention. Um, these stones absorb all the heat from the sun uh, during the daytime, the sunlight hours, and then overnight they release the heat back up under the vines. And that's one of the reasons that the grape development and the yield of the grapes and the sugars that develop in the grapes are so um, special in the Chateau Neuf de Pape region because they have all this extra heat so that even at night when the sun has gone down, uh, these are, as it were, radiating heat to them and keeping the grapes producing new sugars. So have a little feel of that and pass that around. Uh, if you know me at all by now, you know that I love vineyards. Um, not in and of themselves, not just because of the vines and the grapes, but because of what they produce. The pleasure is in the purpose. The pleasure is in the purpose. Vineyards have been established for thousands of years, and they produce grapes that then get made into wine, which is convivial and, and, and enjoyable to drink, but most of all enjoyable to drink in company for fellowship. We're going to celebrate uh, a meal with some wine a little bit later on uh, as we celebrate and share Holy Communion with one another. 
I had visited vineyards all around the world. When Sarah and I were married, um, we went on our honeymoon to South Africa and we stayed on a vineyard so that our bedroom window overlooked uh, the newly planted vines. I visited vineyards in upstate New York, of all places, uh, and been for tastings and bought wine back from New York. We visited vineyards in Essex as well. Um, Who'd have thought it? But we've had uh, wine from Essex. And of course, as you know, I have visited vineyards um, in France on a number of occasions. Now, uh, vineyards need care and protection. Uh, they need care to ensure that the vines are not damaged or spoiled and that they are protected against pests. They need trellis built to support the growth of the vine, don't they, Will? <laughs> Sorry, I'm very distracted because Will, Will keeps on asking Lorraine questions. Okay. Um, they need trellis to support the growth. And vineyards are important in the Bible. They're an important sign and symbol of uh, God's plans and his purposes for his people. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. So in Isaiah 5, there's this, clear as clear can be, God is saying that Israel, his people, are the vineyard that he's planted and established. And he expected good fruit from his people, Israel, from the people of Judah and Jerusalem, but found only bad. He expected justice, but instead saw bloodshed. Expected righteousness, heard cries of distress. Psalm 80 known famously uh, by, uh, in the songbook of the Jewish people, and Jesus' contemporaries knew this well. Psalm 80 says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, it shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It's burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Once again, the psalmist is saying that God's people brought out of captivity in Egypt are the vine. 
the vine that's been planted, established, given a protective wall, a surrounding. But now this wall has fallen to ruin. It's been pulled down. Now other uh, people ravage it and eat from its fruit. And it's a desperate plea uh, for God to restore his people, restore uh, his inheritance. And a desperate plea that God's hand might rest on uh, the, the son of man, the man at the right hand, the son of man you've raised up for us, just starting to hint at this messianic figure that might restore uh, God's people, the vine that was established. Listen now to Jesus' words in John chapter 15. With all of that in your background, in the background, with uh, Jesus' contemporaries, his, his listeners, his disciples, knowing well the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 5, knowing well Psalm 80, they sit down the night before Jesus is crucified and Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He goes on, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's extraordinary. Jesus' disciples would have made the connection, joined the dots, understood that Jesus is talking about God's people, God's precious possession. So here in Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable that the Pharisees and the chief priests understood full well because they knew these scriptures. It said it in verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him. What did he say in this parable? He said there was a landowner who planted and established a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. Sound familiar? It's Isaiah 5. Same words that Isaiah 5 uses. Then says that the owner who planted the vineyard entrusted it to some farmers and went to another place and then came to collect the fruit and came in the person of a servant, sent his servants to collect the fruit. Isaiah 5 said, I looked for the fruit of justice but found only bloodshed. What happens in the parable? The tenants who were caring for the vineyard seized the servants. They beat one, killed another and stoned a third. He sent other servants to them more than the first time and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he thought. The tenants of the vineyard were given a mandate, a charge to care for the vineyard to ensure that it brought forth good fruit, fruit of righteousness. We are given a mandate to share with God in his care of creation. We explored that actually in our all-age worship service last Sunday morning. How when God made man and woman, when he made humankind in his image, he charged them to be fruitful, to multiply. Talking there about procreation, childbirth, be fruitful, multiply, Increase in number and subdue the land or have dominion over the land, care for the land. In the second chapter of Genesis, he brings the animals to Adam to name, to classify, to organize. Just in the same way that perhaps a Victorian paleontologist might name fossil species or things that they found. These animals were brought before Adam for classification. Humankind was given 
the charge of being stewards of creation on God's behalf, being God's undergardeners, as it were. Why? So that we would help the land, the earth, the world, human society produce fruit. Fruit of justice, fruit of joy, fruit of righteousness. And God sends a servant to come and collect and gather this fruit, to bring that fruit back to him in praise and glory. The parable that Jesus tells suggests that God has been sending the prophets time and time again, first one servant, then another, then another, to say just what kind of fruit God is looking for and expecting, but each time they are rejected. So as God's people, we are given a role and a responsibility, a role to be undergardeners, co-carers of creation, stewards under God's will, and a responsibility to seek to bring forth that good fruit back to him. And when we fail, just as the tenants of the vineyard fail in Jesus' parable, there is a result, and the result brings us back to the stones that we passed around. Because all of a sudden, Jesus says, what will happen? He says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting there from Psalm 118. He says, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So all of a sudden, we thought we were talking about vineyards, and now we're talking about some kind of a stone that is going to uh, wreck uh, people in some way or another. Here, Jesus is drawing upon two other scriptures. Psalm 118, where he talks about the stone that was rejected by builders being made the cornerstone. It's an allusion to himself, the one who is rejected by the people. Jesus here is foretelling his being handed over to Herod and Pontius Pilate being sentenced to death, crucified, buried. The one who is rejected by the people will become the cornerstone. But he's also talking about Daniel chapter 2. Do you remember in um, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he wants, he doesn't understand it, and he wants his wise uh, sort of counselors to interpret the dream for him, uh, but to check that they're really wise counselors and they've got proper insight, he doesn't tell them what the dream is. He says, if you really have insight and knowledge and God is really with you, and you then you will be able to tell me both the dream and the interpretation. Well, that is a bit perplexing, isn't it? You know, it's one thing to be told a dream and give an interpretation. It's another thing to have to try and know what... Uh, but Daniel comes forth and says, oh, wise king, I can tell you your dream. And he goes on, he proceeds to tell Nebuchadnezzar both Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation. And he says this, describing Nebuchadnezzar's dream. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, which Daniel described to him, was of a statue 
built in successive different materials, uh, gold, silver, bronze, iron and clay at the bottom. And the interpretation that Daniel gives goes on to say how uh, empires succeed one after another, each becoming more impressive, more powerful, until finally a rock, a stone, strikes the feet of this great sculpture. And all these great and mighty empires, the Persian, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the, the, Alex, you know, the Greeks, the Roman Empire, all blow away like chaff in the wind. But the stone that strikes the feet becomes a huge mountain. Jesus is saying in this parable that neither the bad tenants of the vineyard, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the people of Israel who should have been good tenants of God's vineyard, nor the empires of this world will come to anything but only the stone that the builders rejected that becomes the cornerstone will endure from age to age. So it's a warning to us. It's a prophetic warning about our standing and our role as uh, those who are tenants, carers of God's vineyard, those who have charge over his people, over creation, over how we care under God for all entrusted to us. It's also a warning to us about putting our trust in the empires of this world, putting our hope in money, putting our hope in political parties, putting uh, our hope in technology, AI, ChatGBT, putting our hope in uh, whatever the latest uh, medical innovation is. He says all the empires of this world will turn to dust in the end, so trust only in the rock, the stone that the builders rejected. So on a day like today when we read this passage, I think the only fitting response is a response of repentance. To recognize that sometimes we have been too much like the tenants in the vineyard, ignoring God's word, ignoring God's prophets. And when, when those slightly uncomfortable words come to us in the scripture, those prophetic challenges about obeying God, about doing what God asks, and we say, nah, let's keep that away. That's sort of what the tenants were doing when the prophets were sent. So let's repent of those times when we have shunned God's words, shunned God's voice, tried to keep the fruit of the vineyard for ourselves, not exercise proper care. But let's also repent of the times when we have put our trust in the empires of this world the powers of this present age that are passing away and will one day be dashed to pieces and become like dust in the wind. And while we're on the theme of a vineyard and thinking about the good fruit that Isaiah looked for, let's bear in mind that when John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, he challenged the Pharisees, the people of his day in Matthew chapter 3, to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3 verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. St. Paul wrote that the fruit of righteousness is holy living, resulting in praise and glory to God. That's Philippians 1.11. Fruit of righteousness, fruit of repentance. And there is hope for us. In Jesus' parable, he says, 
that in the end, the owner of the vineyard sends his son, his most precious, beloved son, to the tenants, believing they will respect him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What an awful thing to do. But herein lies a sort of weird paradox. The tenants took the son who was sent and killed him thinking they could claim the inheritance. They could claim all of the belongings or possessions of the vineyard owner. God sent his only son, Jesus. And Jesus came did not need to be taken by force but gladly surrendered himself to be killed that we might receive the inheritance all the good gifts of the father the tenants in the vineyard thought that they could take the son and kill him and claim the inheritance God in his infinite wisdom sent his son gladly to die for us so that we might receive as a gift the inheritance that God has for us You see, it's the other way around. It's not about killing and claiming. It's about Jesus surrendering his life and offering us all the riches of heaven. And all we need to do to receive those riches is put our trust in the stone that the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. All that we need to do is repent of those times we have been like the evil tenants in the vineyard or when we have trusted in the empires of this world. All we need to do is repent and produce fruit of righteousness as we receive the gifts of the Father through the Son who gladly came and gave his life for us. Would you like to stand and let's pray. Father God, we could never take from you what is not ours by violence. But we thank you that through your son Jesus, you have gladly given us all things by his sacrifice. You have given us a role and a responsibility to be under gardeners in your vineyard, co-stewards of creation. And we repent of the times when we have rejected your word, shunned your prophets, tried to claim fruit or riches or wealth for ourselves. We repent of the times we have been bad tenants. And we repent also of the times when we have put our trust in the empires of this world, of this age. And instead, we pray that you would plant our feet upon the one true rock, the stone that the builders rejected, that has become the cornerstone, that we may stand on this rock of ages, your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.